0: From the hulls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. We fight our country's battles on the land as on the sea. Admiration of the nation, we're the finest ever seen. And we glory in the title of United States free. Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 11, From the Halls of Montezuma, The Scott Campaign, Veracruz to Mexico City. We've discussed that the political machinations of James K. Polk began long before Zachary Taylor even arrived in Texas, but today we'll first detail all the wild nonsense that went on to replace the field commander. Polk selected Taylor because Andrew Jackson told him that Taylor was the man to rely upon, though the aging Jackson had been thinking primarily of the possibility of war with Great Britain, not Mexico. Still, we know that Taylor indeed was the hardened warrior needed in that hour. Now, in this era, it has become very fashionable, and not entirely without justification, to focus entirely on Andrew Jackson's faults, and he definitely had them. However, it's worth remembering that he also held many great virtues and talents, and among them was a quality of judgment rarely equaled. A sizable political gulf separated Jackson and Taylor, but Jackson also respected Zachary Taylor as a worthy commander. Polk, by contrast, could never understand that depth of judgment. James K. Polk thought of very little except politics and never adequately understood most anything outside of it, actually. But of course, he was hardly alone in worshiping at the Temple of Democratic Politics in this era. Nor was he all that unusual in world history for confusing the interests of his class and constituency with moral righteousness, if he thought of morality at all. After requesting, and receiving, support for the war in May of 1846, Polk found himself surprised by the generosity of Congress. Although a number of its members deeply opposed the war, the body as a whole could hardly avoid supporting the actual troops fighting at that same moment so they voted for a 50,000-man force atop the existing regular army. Polk would never employ such a formidable host, and in fact, the recruitment turned into something of a chaotic mess due to the weird decisions of the venerable General Gaines, formerly a rival of Winfield Scott for the sole major generalcy available. Stationed in New Orleans, General Edmund Gaines signed up thousands of men for six months' terms of service, which, in addition to being straight wrong under the Militia Act, also added a useless burden. By law, the allowed terms was three months to meet an immediate emergency. Now, Congress and President Polk had instead agreed upon a choice of a one-year term of service, or until the end of the war, for new recruits. But in the meantime, 8,000 six-month men eventually reached Taylor, where they accomplished approximately 8,000 nothings, apart from eating up 8,000 rations daily. Worse yet, in fine political tradition, Congress allowed that the state governors had the right to pick every officer below the rank of general, which immediately brought far too many ambitious amateurs into a service where they would be leading their own voters into deadly danger. This is not a recipe for either tight discipline or effective leadership, although at least the courage of these officers rarely failed. The War Bill passed Congress and became law on May 13, 1846. Curiously, that same day, Mr. Polk took another, much less noticed, action. Though hardly marked at the time, it would go on to have profound consequences on the war. Polk dispatched a message to Commodore David Connor, dispatched to Blockade, the primary Mexican Gulf port of Veracruz, with a message to allow Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana passage back into Mexico, if he so wished. Behind this lay a desire to stir up Mexican politics, but also the manipulative part of Polk's character. After receiving private visits from one of Santa Ana's loyalists, Polk now believed that Santa Ana, personally, might prove pliable with the promise of American gold running through his hands. And if not, he could add to the chaos and thus make Mexico more vulnerable, with the added weight of his ambitions. In fact, Santa Ana did arrive in August and a good portion of the nation's military indeed defected to his side. Instead of creating chaos, however, he more or less unified the military for the first time in years, and came very close to destroying Taylor's force outright at Buena Vista the following February. All that lay in the future, however. In the meantime, Polk also hoped to get rid of a couple thorns in his side, namely Zachary Taylor and Winfield Scott. This presented Polk with two different but very difficult problems. Both were long-serving regular army men with deep reputations. Zachary Taylor had just won two substantial victories in the field, and became a national popular hero overnight in the process. Scott, on the other hand, held nearly every last ward and honor that past presidents could grant, until he had become the ranking commander in the army, and the only major general in service. Now, Scott personally was vain, sensitive, prone to talking a bit more freely than he ought, and a bit overly aristocratic. He was also one of the most intelligent officers to ever serve the American flag. Few men understood war as well as he, from the first moment of planning to developing a strategic proposal, from organizing logistics to scouting to commanding in battle. Furthermore, he had one great advantage over Taylor in that his proximity to the muck and mire of Washington politics enabled him to more keenly see the webs woven by Polk. Scott also had a fairly astute idea As to what it might take to actually end the war with mexico and strove from the first to do so as efficiently as possible unfortunately president polk frankly had no idea how to fight a war and worse no idea of his limitations on that front either he expected that scott might rush off to the front conveniently superseding taylor's glory and getting out of washington's political environments scott on the other hand intended to stay in the capital And when he left, it would be to organize their reinforcements and supply issues, not to immediately take command. Scott needed a firm hand managing the bureaucracy and supplying the armies. He also respected Taylor's fighting prowess and recognized that the latter commander, successfully fighting in the field, might feel more than a little insulted to suddenly have his army stolen. Here as well, Polk and his right-hand man, Secretary of War William Marcy, acted foolishly and childishly which is to say, exactly like politicians usually do. Rather than try to work out the actual issues with General Scott, which required some amount of finesse in bargaining, they chose option B, public humiliation. This really amounted to no more than a smug but loud bit of sneering at some ill-chosen words of Scott. But in doing so, they also made themselves look small-minded, and by picking an unnecessary fight, they earned a little more enmity from the Whigs. At something of an impasse, Polk was even at the same moment intriguing to attempt a replacement of Scott with Senator Thomas Hart Benton. There were, however, some rather significant obstacles to this plan. Now, we'll get to discussing Benton in the future, but he is important with a capital letter I. Benton had fashioned himself as the Apostle of the West, the strongest voice proclaiming westward expansion. And as a solid Democrat, He became a firm ally of President Polk since they agreed on expansion to nearly the last detail. Benton found himself as one of the few people that Polk really listened to, and he took full advantage to press his case for policy. Unfortunately, Benton hadn't worn a uniform in decades, and Polk's attempt to effectively replace the Whig-dominated army with a pack of untried Democrats went exactly nowhere. In the end, the only result was that General Zachary Taylor gained a well-earned promotion to Major General. This partially fulfilled Polk's purpose of kicking Winfield Scott in the shins, yet while Scott was made to look the fool in public, Polk himself had done nothing more clever than the antics of a school bully. On a more functional note, however, Polk and Benton did arrange for the Kearney Expedition, and Benton's son-in-law, Fremont, was even at that moment stirring up revolution in California. In the end, all the schemes of all Washington put together might be irrelevant if and when the United States had troops patrolling the West and occupying all its principal towns, with Zachary Taylor holding northern Mexico. As we've seen, Taylor then successfully did so, but in the process he allowed a surrender on terms at Monterey. Winfield Scott, upon hearing the news, immediately and publicly declared the battle, The Three Glorious Days. Polk merely gritted his teeth and snarled at Taylor in response. Now, Scott, for his part, sent Taylor a little bit of insider information on all the schemes to replace Taylor in command. Now, old rough and ready was many things, but he had about as much love for politicians as he did for mosquitoes. He would probably prefer to smack both in the same blow, given the chance. And here, as the truce of Monterey ended, Polk made a fateful decision. It was probably the strategically correct decision, but it was not made to serve the ends of a successful war but instead to serve Polk's political needs. Brigadier General, no, now Major General, Zachary Taylor, had won victory after victory. But Polk hadn't bothered to open any lines of diplomatic communication with the Mexican government, and he had no real way to force peace on terms at all. So Polk looked around and realized that his only option to end the war quickly required beating a treaty from Mexico by invading the heart of its power. Additionally, He also wanted to neutralize zachary taylor who by this point had become virtually uncle sam himself in the public eye so polk brought out the long pondered idea of an invasion at vera cruz and bitter as the medicine might taste he badly needed general scott to lead it of course senator betton also humbly offered his services to polk if congress saw fit to make him a lieutenant general in the bargain this was basically declaring himself the equivalent of george washington But that idea had no traction whatsoever. And General Winfield Scott did want to take this command. He had succeeded in fixing the arrangements for the military in this time. Now, with everything in motion, he longed to take the field himself. So, Pope broke the logjam and asked Scott to take command. Pope legitimately could not have made a better choice. But the truth is, is that he had to be painfully talked into seeing reality by Secretary of War Marcy. Even the prideful Senator Benton saw the necessity and backed the idea of a Scott-led expedition. Marcy and Benton, whatever their political proclivities, had pragmatic streaks and did not allow themselves to be blinded to the military realities by factionalism. Winfield Scott also made the whole matter easier by giving President Polk some fawning praise to speed the process, although he probably meant not a word of it. Polk ironically thus found himself the manipulated pawn in this matter, rather than driving events in his perverted direction. But either way, with an order in his pocket, Scott commenced the work that Taylor, operating from Monterey, could not. The day was November 19th, 1846, and it changed the course of the war in Mexico. General Winfield Scott embodied everything Taylor was not. Nicknamed Old Fuss and Feathers due to his habit of wearing, as Grant put it, all the uniforms prescribed or allowed by law, whenever permitted, Scott looked every inch the professional soldier. And he was. Scott made his reputation in the War of 1812 and never looked back. He would prove Taylors equal on the battlefield in the campaigns to come, going down as one of America's greatest commanders. He would need every ounce of skill because the task at hand presented formidable challenges. Scott's plan avoided northern Mexico as much as possible. Instead, General Scott would launch an invasion from the coast by assaulting the Mexican port city of Veracruz. Once fully landed, Scott had to advance through the heart of Mexican power and capture the capital of Mexico City. This would require him to break through or bypass an entire host of defensible sites and cities, defeat Mexican forces with ample supplies and heightened morale, deal with his own defects in those areas, and then force a favorable peace with Santa Ana or whomever, While Scott did have all available troops, that was not a single soldier too many. Further, time did not lay on Scott's side, a fact of which he was painfully well aware. Disease, specifically yellow fever, could decimate invading forces twice over, as other invaders of Mexico had learned before. So it became critical that Scott move on Veracruz and then leave before the worst of the vomito season hit. Fortunately, the regular army and many now veteran volunteers, were obviously already in Texas and therefore did not need as much transportation. And since Scott would travel by water, he could also dispense with some of the heavy baggage that might otherwise slow him down. Even so, it was only Scott's skill with organization and logistics which allowed the offensive to go on at all, and a display of amphibious operations rare outside of the British Navy in this era. Scott, in fact, had been pondering the details of such an expedition for some time, and when he received his orders, immediately dispatched agents to New Orleans to build the necessary landing craft. This issue, in fact, had plagued Taylor's inadequately supplied command, even when landing on controlled ground, because the absence of dredged harbors, piers, or other port facilities made moving heavy supplies an agonizing process with much loss. However, Scott would only receive a third of the landing craft he wanted, as all the carpentry New Orleans supplied simply could not fulfill the entire request. Making a temporary stop on the Rio Grande, Scott sent forward the fateful orders that stripped Taylor of around 9,000 good troops, including the valuable flying artillery. One copy of this order instead fell into Santa Ana's hands, sparking the crisis point at Buena Vista. However, a side effect was to create a new rift between Taylor and Scott. Now, from Scott's point of view, he was trying to be gentle and politic about the order, which was a legitimate military need. From Taylor's point of view, Scott's attempt at diplomacy came across as oily self dealing, with an insultingly small fig leaf. Frankly, Taylor would have been much happier had Scott just forthrightly explained the issue and apologized. Arguably, Scott would have been better served to just go forward and talk to Taylor in person. However, what was done was done, and the expedition went forward. Scott's 4th, brought up by the Navy, landed unopposed just south of Veracruz on March 9, 1847, barely two weeks after Buena Vista, and immediately began moving on the city. He heavily outnumbered the defenders, but his greatest advantage lay in artillery. As in northern Mexico, that arm would prove decisive in the campaign to come. Now, on paper, Veracruz's defenders had good reason for confidence, because the city possessed possibly the strongest defensive works in North or South America. Scott had no choice, however, but to take the city in order to advance. The recruits would not surrender easily. Indeed, taking it required the Americans first carve out a path through the dunes and then move their artillery into positions overlooking the city. Here, a youthful engineering officer named Robert E. Lee first came into his own during daring scouting raids and placing his artillery positions. Lee's brother, Naval Lieutenant Sidney Smith Lee, arrived with the sailors sent to support Scott with heavy guns. The brothers experienced the flame and blast of cannons practically side by side when the grueling bombardment began on March 22nd. This marks one of the few times in the history of the Americas where anything like a regular siege occurred. The preparations had been decisive, however. Within three days, the artillery was able to blast a large gap in the city walls, while infantry pressured Veracruz's defenses to the breaking point, while Mexican infantry themselves continually launched surprise attacks on the Americans in return. Nonetheless, in the end, the city fell with only minor casualties on either side. Scott planned a final assault, but it became unnecessary. The foreign consuls of Britain and France stationed in the city first appealed to Scott and then to General Morales to end the fighting, at least for the sake of the civilian population suffering greatly under the bombardment. When hearing this, and after reviewing the situation, none of Morales' subordinates believed that the city could be held. General Morales, unwilling to bear the personal shame of defeat, functionally resigned his post claiming sickness, and allowed Veracruz to fall into American hands without any further bloodshed. Before we go any further, it's worth noting why no one tried to relieve Veracruz or reinforce it because the events following Santa Ana's return from Buena Vista had a major impact on the course of the war. In the brief time Santa Ana was away fighting and losing Buena Vista, his political right-hand man made a fateful decision to confiscate a massive amount of money from the Catholic Church in Mexico. This was a problem for two reasons. First, the Church was already happy to loan large amounts of hard currency at very favorable rates, or even donating millions of dollars worth to the government making them one of the few domestic sources financing the war effort. Second, it sparked a brief but vicious rebellion in Mexico City. It was only quelled when Santa Ana returned and made substantial concessions in exchange for some immediate funds. While the rebellion itself was deeply unpopular, the rebels were often seen as wealthy, self-indulgent traitors in the middle of war. It might have been better for all involved had Santa Ana been toppled from power, given what's about to happen. In any case, it distracted Santa Ana and weakened his thin support still further, and functionally stopped any military effort in the short term. Instead, General Scott had time to take Veracruz and push onward. With the city secured, Scott had a fortified base of operations behind him, and a reasonably strong army to advance into the interior, even bringing along companies of Marines detached for special service with the army. This came just in time, as the annual scourge of yellow fever was nearly to descend upon the city, and American soldiers had very little immunity to it. Disease, always the bane of armies in hot, humid climates, usually killed more soldiers than battlefield injuries in any war anywhere during this era. Scott was naturally keen to avoid a plague that would sap his army's strength. Accordingly, he departed the city on April 2nd and began his advance to Mexico City winding along the National Road through a mountain range to get there, and following the same route of Cortez centuries earlier. Two weeks later, Scott encountered General de Santa Ana at a mountain called Cerro Gordo. Quick note, it also had another name as El Telegrafo, so if you ever hear that, that's what they're talking about. It's the same location. Here, Santa Ana had pulled together a fairly large force, and fortified himself behind a defile, a mere 50 miles inland from Veracruz. And oddly enough, Santa Ana more or less placed his armories in practically his own backyard, for he owned a home in nearby Jalapa. He knew the location well, and in fact, he had a powerful defensive position with multiple overlapping batteries of artillery, his right protected by the Rio del Plan, and his left by mountains. However, Santa Ana turned passive despite seeing heavy activity from the oncoming American army, which had dire results. Crucially, Early American reconnaissance noted the Mexican position, as well as the geographical locations dominating it, La Atalaya, or Atalaya Hill. Now here, four future major generals, but currently all junior officers, conferred to scout this position and prepared their own front. Pierre-Gustave Toutant Beauregard, Joe Johnston, William Brooks, and Zealous Bates Tower. No, I'm not making that name up. Brooks and Beauregard scouted a critical pathway, which they hoped might lead around the Mexican batteries, with Beauregard even climbing up Atalaya, the neighboring peak to Cerro Gordo. These men also discouraged the sometimes erratic commander on scene, General Twiggs, from making a risky frontal attack that would likely result in a heap of bodies and no gain. Fortunately, General Patterson also arrived and basically restrained Twiggs from launching a foolish attack. Scott's full force arrived on April 14th, and he took command for himself. Seeing the natural strength of the Mexican position, Scott took note of the possibility of a flank maneuver and dispatched his favorite right-hand man, Captain Robert E. Lee, to lead a daring scouting mission to explore that path behind the defenses. This Lee did, according to legend, coming so close that Mexican soldiers were actually sitting on the log he was hiding behind. While the path he discovered formed a difficult road, Lee believed it could be done. The army then somehow hauled heavy cannon up one man footpaths on Atalaya Hill in a matter of days. When the battle came, this would allow them to bombard the Mexican position from surprise. Scott, however, wasn't satisfied with merely that. Arranging his forces carefully on april eighteenth, he sent Twigs to attack on the rear of the Mexican camp, on the all important pathways scouted through the mountains. General Harney with a soldier stationed on La Atalaya in preparation, quickly rushed across and captured the Mexican artillery placed on Cerro Gordo, which otherwise would have bombarded Twiggs and alerted the Mexican camp. These men then turned the guns on the Mexican infantry in the low ground below. Thereafter, Twiggs' command, including a certain James Shield, who once had nearly fought a duel with an obscure Illinois lawyer named Abraham Lincoln, led the final assault on the Mexican camp. Though not caught completely unprepared, the Mexican soldiers found themselves caught in a sudden crossfire. With soldiers and civilians taking shots from seemingly every direction, all order fell apart. 8,000 Mexican soldiers fled the battlefield in confusion. Santa Ana rode off among them. Minus his wooden leg, and no, I'm not making that up either. Said wooden leg is still on display in a museum in Illinois, captured as a war trophy by troops of that state a thousand mexican soldiers died in the brief fighting three thousand others surrendered having been left on the field surrounded american battle losses totaled 600 men killed and wounded the only dark cloud in all the silver lining was the annoying failure of general pillow an energetic democrat who supported polk early on pillow had the exasperating habit of lying so frequently that one may as well consult the tea leaves as ask him a question completely without military knowledge, experience in battle, or even the kind of horse sense that serves in a fight, Pillow led his men on the wrong path. He spent blood uselessly, couldn't even follow a course literally laid out for him, and quarreled with trained soldiers of the right way to attack. However, Scott wanted to avoid making more trouble with the Polk administration, and provided a certain amount of cover for this failure. For Winfield Scott, The battle represented a great victory, but there were some complications. On the positive side, the way to Mexico City now lay entirely open. Santa Ana had rushed off to the field south in full retreat and would not make another stand. However, this would, and did, mean that Scott's entire supply line would run the very long, very mountainous path back to Veracruz. This vital lifeline lay wide open to attacks by guerrillas, And yet, Scott could not possibly defend or garrison very much of the country, and he knew it. At the same time, Scott was about to receive reinforcements, but large numbers of the now hardened volunteers had completed their enlistments and planned to leave. Scott made his own work more complicated with a difficult, but probably correct, decision to treat the Mexican population with considerable respect, given that he was leading a fairly small army deep in hostile territory in a war run on the cheap. This attitude might seem decidedly odd, and it certainly struck President Polk that way. However, the price paid in money paid dividends in the end by making peace and cooperation far more acceptable and limiting guerrilla activity. Scott paid cash for food supplies instead of seizing them, and insisted his soldiers abide by proper discipline as long as they were in his army. Given that Santa Ana was deeply unpopular and of questionable legitimacy in the beginning, these actions dampened the support that the teetering Mexican president might draw upon. To illustrate just how dire things had become for Santa Ana, Scott essentially walked into the city of Pueblo without opposition, conveniently giving him a base halfway between Veracruz and Mexico City, as well as a good rest drop to drill his raw recruits, reorganize his command, and wait for resupply. The local populace had no intention of fighting for a Mexican government in shambles, and in particular held no love for their current president. It wasn't exactly defection, but still at this point Santa Anna's basic political failure became obvious. It turns out that seizing control of a nation in a kind of military dictatorship tends to hurt your legitimacy. Worse yet for Santa Anna, Puebla's sympathies leaned towards devout Catholicism and favored that brief rebellion in Mexico City mentioned previously, meaning they were doubly disaffected. Meanwhile, General Scott had shown conspicuous respect towards the church wherever he went. Now, Scott would set out on the road to Mexico City on August 7th. He reached the outskirts of the city on several days later. Now, unfortunately, Scott faced a huge challenge, because while Santa Ana's reputation had fallen to tatters everywhere else in the nation, he still held immense strength immediately on hand, because yes, somehow he had managed to run all the way back to Mexico City and reorganize his command again in fact although the troops were not all of equal quality the mexican forces possessed perhaps 30000 troops in the region in several garrisons guarding every road to the capital and every possible strong point now scott could overwhelm some of these but overwhelming all of them might not be in the cards scott had fewer than 11000 soldiers on hand the key to the mexican defense lay in the terrain mexico city at the time looked very little as it does today The landscape around the city proper was extremely broken and difficult to cross, with access to the city lying in several major avenues known as causeways, the course of which, for some, actually dated all the way back to the Aztec period. Scott, however, was not deterred, and he set a new campaign in motion to reduce the defenses of Mexico City, starting at Contreras, around 10 miles directly south. Now, the swing southward became necessary because the substantial position of El Peñón lay on the direct road to Mexico City, and any attack there would require weaving between easily guarded hills. Scott, with his command reduced by even a small number of readouts held in his rear, had little desire to make such an attack. So, his plan was ultimately to flank the city and strike from another causeway, around the south end of Lake Ch- 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 And I apologize if I butchered the pronunciation. Now, this path avoided the prepared defenses at El Peñón, but it would require crossing the Churubusco River. However, Santa Ana once again lapsed into stagnancy, and he did little apart from reinforcing that line. But 7,000 soldiers were left on the south side of it, and Scott advanced ever closer. It seems that Santa Ana may have thought that Scott would simply ignore those soldiers, but rather than striking north into the city, Scott again flanked west. Now, much as at Cerro Gordo, he used Captain Lee to find that flanking route. In this case, Lee avoided those 7,000 soldiers under General Valencia by cutting a road straight across a dried lava bed called the Pedregal. On August 19th, this enabled Captain John Magruder, whose artillery had climbed La Atalaya, to move up once again and fire on the position of General Valencia. However, this did not go nearly as well for the Americans as previously. Although they were hardly broken, Magruder's battery did little damage and had to fall back under heavy fire. Meanwhile, our old friend General Pillow had sent forward several brigades to block the road to Mexico City. Unfortunately, this put the infantry in a deadly situation, for Santa Ana had finally roused himself and was marching on the Americans. In the late evening, Brigadier General Persifor Smith, who I have not mentioned but who has showed conspicuous courage in several previous battles, sized up this dangerous situation and resolved to move out in the dark. The plan was to move around the American soldiers placed precariously out on Valencia's left and then attack him at daybreak. Smith could see Santa Anna's large fourths and figured that he had to attack and defeat Valencia immediately or basically all of those soldiers placed out there would be crushed between the two. He located the redoubtable Captain Lee, who went back and forth with Scott to finalize this attack under cover of dark. Smith made the movement and waited for daybreak. Ironically, those troops trapped between the two Mexican warlords found themselves in the safest place in the end as dawn rose on the morning of the twentieth. Valencia's men expected to see the Americans stuck between themselves and Santa Ana. instead, they discovered the Americans were on the verge of trapping them on three sides while the artillery pushed back the previous day, had returned to the fight. General Valencia, half-drunk from celebrating the victory too early, seemed unable to comprehend the situation, and his officers similarly were no condition to lead. At 5 a.m., Perciforce Smith led the assault on the Mexican position, obliterating the defenses in 17 minutes, which sounds like it really ought to be a record somewhere. The Mexican army under Valencia lost 2,000 killed, wounded, and captured, 22 artillery pieces of what they had left, and four generals. Scott lost 60 men. Santa Anna's only contribution was to order his soldiers to shoot Valencia sight, which I think technically makes him Scott's temporary ally. The next day, Scott moved up five miles and began what would become the Battle of Churubusco. Following the previous day's bloody defeat, Santa Anna reinforced his southern line at the convent of San Mateo. Now, the convent, had good, solid stone walls, and would make a strong defensive site, augmented by field works at various points around it. The biggest weaknesses for the defenders was the distinct lack of cannon and manpower. Santa Ana for once had uh, fewer numbers, with only 4,000 on to hand and many of the defenses were improvised and not likely to stand up to American firepower. Nonetheless, the Mexican soldiers fought well in the battle as they always did, and inflicted a toll Scott could ill afford. Their artillery, despite being woefully outgunned, fired until the cannon themselves grew too hot to make any further use of. Meanwhile, American troops worked around the flanks and captured the area piecemeal. In the end, Santa Anna lost the battle, 600 casualties, and nearly another 2,000 captured troops, but had inflicted a 1,000 casualties on the attackers in the process. After this, Events went into slow motion and diplomacy, at least temporarily, took over for the drums of war. Scott wanted to avoid trying to take the city by assault at this point, believing that events could spiral out of control and that a bloody massacre would cost him the respect needed to make a peace. Fortunately for him, with Scott at the very gates of Mexico City, Santa Ana suddenly became willing to talk terms, or at least talk about money, lots of money, with the American negotiator, Nicholas Trist. Now, Nicholas Trist is a very interesting figure in his own right, a staunch pro-slavery Democrat who married the granddaughter of his law teacher, who just so happened to be Thomas Jefferson. Trist would serve as personal secretary to Andrew Jackson and consul to Cuba, where he subverted anti-slave trade laws. He also became deeply involved in the Amistad affair, which resulted in his recall and semi-disgrace upon being found out. As a quote-unquote reputable professional in the State Department... He was a natural choice for Polk, and not surprisingly, the Whig-supporting General Winfield Scott eyed Trist with deep suspicion when he showed up to accompany the army into Mexico. Now, some ill-advised letters from Trist to Scott further made him look like a small-minded partisan. Once they finally met, however, the pair smoothed over their differences in relatively short order. Trist was many things, but once free of the direct influence of President Polk and his party, he started to think differently, and a little more independently. He did agree that the war was a little ethically questionable, and yet, like Scott, was keen to do his duty. The pro-slavery Southerner, practically the embodiment of the Democratic Party, Trist would eventually go on to do a complete about-face and support anti-slavery Republicans, such as American political life. Getting back to the current war, however, Trist began a round of bargaining with Santa Ana, and his offer was harsh. Polk wanted Texas north of the Rio Grande, of course, but as we've seen, his ambitions included California and all the lands in between. Baja California was also a goal, although Polk didn't insist upon that either. President Polk's offer did include a plan to compensate Mexico, with a trivial 20 or $30 million. You can imagine how that offer went over. Now, Santa Anna, for his part, wanted only $10,000, preferably in gold and payable immediately. Now, this didn't have anything to do with the bargaining exactly, he just wanted to get another bribe up front. Now, not surprisingly, negotiations dragged on for a month to no real gain. The wait also allowed Santa Anna breathing room to steady his forces, for he freely violated the terms of the truce. Scott knew about this, of course, but he hoped to avoid more assaults like the gore-strewn scene at Churubusco the American lines were growing thinner by the day, and resistance a little fiercer. By early September, however, all the talk had come to nothing. General Scott received reports that the Mexicans were concentrating at a site called Molino del Rey, northwest of Mexico City. With word of increased Mexican activity, he knew that the shaky truce would hold no longer. Further, he received word that the Mexicans were attempting to restore their supply of cannon by recasting bronze church bells, Scott therefore resolved to circle around the city and capture that site. Unfortunately, the Mexican army had used their time well and had re-entrenched their positions. Now, Molino del Rey was a mill, as in, it turned grain into flour type of mill. And the reports that Scott received about casting cannon there, well, that does not seem to have been true. Although that may actually have been a rumor started by Santa Ana himself trying to bolster the courage of his remaining troops. But Scott attacked Molino del Rey regardless, so it is largely irrelevant. The battle opened before 6 a.m. on September 8th, with a multi-pronged assault by forces under General Worth. It all started with a sudden rush to strike and hold a ditch protecting the mill. What followed was a very bloody morning as the Americans were driven off, reinforced, shoved forward, lost officers, but finally managed to force the Mexican soldiers to surrender, flee, or perish, sometimes in room-to-room fighting. In the end, Scott faced some 800 casualties, which was not an excessive number, but irreplaceable at this stage of the campaign. Meanwhile, he inflicted a slightly larger number on the smaller Mexican force, plus he had captured 500 men. Had Santa Ana bothered to appoint a single officer to lead the defense, it might have gone even much worse. On its own, the Battle of Molino del Rey accomplished very little, since it didn't bring Scott any closer to victory or ending the war. However, by moving his force to the northwest side of Mexico City, Scott now had another piece of the puzzle. Seeing no alternative, Scott now committed himself to taking Mexico City, believing that doing so would be the next necessary step to end the war favorably. After Churubusco, he perhaps had the opportunity to advance directly north into the city proper, but only after taking a long causeway and assaulting the city gates. However, With the advance on the Molino del Rey, he discovered another option. Close by lay the military academy of Chapultepec, and directly behind lay yet another of the major avenues into Mexico City. At a council of war, and the most rare of species, the useful and functional council of war, Scott stated his intention to break through the western approach instead of from the south, which seems to have been his original plan. Accordingly, on September 12th, Scott launched 9,000 men at the Citadel, a fortress with fewer than 900 defenders. Among those soldiers lay one very unique group. The cadets at the military academy requested to stay and defend the grounds, and they would die doing so. Though outnumbered, they had courage, and the sturdy fortress might counter the weight of firepower. Nonetheless, it was not to be. The defending soldiers indeed inflicted great casualties, and even halted the three assault columns. Yet they simply could not permanently stop the attacking soldiers and marines who scrambled over their own dead and wounded and climbed scaling ladders to break through. Joe Johnson's regiment seems to have been the first to plant the flag on Chapultepec. But once he did, resistance quickly collapsed. Below, Mexican citizens watched in horror as young cadets leapt from the heights rather than surrender their colors. Americans now claimed the fortress literally overlooking the city itself. In the end, the American troops took Chapultepec, but in the process received agonizing casualties. 900 Americans died, similar to the losses among the Mexican forces, who courageously fought very nearly to the last man. But 2,400 men were wounded, a huge proportion of the attacking force. Scott lost in this one battle nearly a third of the forces he took into this campaign, although most of these soldiers would recover given time to rest and heal. A dangerous proportion, however, of Scott's officers were also wounded, leaving him critically short of leadership. Winfield Scott had no opportunity to rest on his laurels, and the following day, he immediately attacked the unprepared gates of Mexico City, which were duly breached in a fierce but short fight. At this point, especially following all of these battles, Santa Ana arguably had a substantial manpower advantage, still around two to one. But it was too late. The authorities of the city had had enough, the people had had enough, and they outright asked Santa Anna just to leave, in order to spare the population of the capital the effects of bloody battles in the middle of the streets. For Santa Anna, the end may have arrived with a humiliating kind of relief. Time and again, the American invaders took position after position that he had cited and prepared, destroyed or captured cannon by the score, killed or took prisoner all of his loyalists and generals, And drove him back and back again santa anna for now would withdraw to guadalupe hidalgo although he did return to the field for a failed attempt to capture the city of puebla which had so recently welcomed scott i should also mention that general valencia a personal political enemy of santa anna fought to his death in defense of the national palace even while santa anna scarpered nonetheless the war was now effectively over president polk's great gamble paid off like nothing in history With, quite frankly, an undermanned military, Polk's generals had conquered a proud people of a great nation. Polk, naturally, took the opportunity to stab both his personally appointed negotiator and his conquering hero in the back. To explain this, you have to understand that Nicholas Triss wasn't quite as aggressive as Polk wanted now on negotiations. Polk, naturally, remained ensconced in Washington, D.C., and his view was that the Mexicans ought to give him anything his little heart might desire, although he could never entirely articulate exactly what that was. Trist, however, was on the ground attempting to craft a workable deal with an exhausted, but still proud and honorable, Mexico. Here, Trist ended up on the horns of a dilemma, because Polk became absolutely livid when he heard that Trist was trying to avoid unnecessary antagonization, and he sent over an order recalling Trist. Nicholas Trist, upon receiving this order, flatly ignored it. Since there was no other diplomat on the spot, he simply continued his negotiations anyway. Polk couldn't really do anything about it, and ironically, the order wound up liberating Trist to do as he pleased, since there was no actual replacement for him. While Scott invested Mexico City, and his soldiers and officers rested and kept order, Marines guarding the halls of Montezuma, Nicholas Trist hammered out a treaty that would give Polk, frankly, everything he really wanted, if less than he now asked for. Mexico would indeed lose the claimed regions of Texas, the New Mexico Territory, and California. Yet this wasn't as unfortunate for Mexico as it might at first have seemed. Although the territory they surrendered was vast in size, very little of it was well populated, and California in particular had largely been self-governed and ignored Mexico proper. Only a small portion of really valuable territory north of the Rio Grande would have to be given up, while at the same time the loss would ironically free Mexico of the difficulty and expense of trying to control or defend these far-flung territories. And a $16 million payment made it go down a little bit easier. Years later, the United States would also purchase another small slice of territory known as the Gadsden Purchase for $10 million. Nicholas Triss dutifully sent the treaty off to President Polk, who promptly reconsidered his position. Despite all the military victories, his political standing, if anything, had almost entirely deflated. The country still did not unite behind him. Many Whigs still stood for no territorial gain whatsoever, and even Democrats simply wanted to finally conclude the conflict. It had, after all, been long and contentious two years filled with numerous bloody battles that took their toll on army regulars, marines, and volunteers alike. Disease killed many of the bold farm boys who wanted their chance at adventure and excitement, but what most assumed was the defining war of their time. Polk, though he proved effective in undercutting subordinates, inspired neither love nor loyalty, and his public reputation now seemed vicious, narrowly partisan, and small-minded. In the end, he bowed to the inevitable. And a grudging Congress accepted the treaty, though only by a slim margin. Hot on the heels of this triumph, however, Polk felt the need to engage in a bit of personal cruelty on behalf of the generally useless General Pillow. As mentioned, Pillow was not a military man at all, and frankly, too young and too inexperienced for what he had gained. He received his rank as a political favor from Polk. Reports of his wartime exploits were decidedly mixed, with some accusing him of cowardice, and others stating that Pillow had courage if not particularly, the competence to go with his rank. Regardless of the truth here, one aspect of Pillow's career is undeniable. He couldn't shut up for five minutes about his various fictitious and amazing exploits. This is precisely what got him into trouble with General Scott. Pillow semi-anonymously claimed some rather absurd victories for himself to the New Orleans press. Aside from the flagrant lies, this violated a clear regulation that forbade officers from such independent, reporting, leading Scott to court-martial Pillow over the incident. Now, frankly, Scott actually behaved with extreme restraint and gave Pillow about the lightest slap on the wrist he could. But Pillow then ran crying to Polk, and here lay a fresh problem for General Scott. As I mentioned earlier, Santa Ana had requested bribes before accepting any rounds of inevitably fruitless negotiations, I believe both after Chirigordo and at the gates of Mexico City. Scott rolled his eyes, but conceded the point, sensing that it might be a necessary step towards bargaining with the only Mexican leader available at the time. Pillow seized upon this issue, despite the frankly trivial amount involved, much less that Polk wouldn't have cared a whit had it not been politically convenient. With this tidbit in hand, Polk officially recalled General Scott and relieved him of command. Reportedly, the citizens of Mexico City were astonished to see that Scott quietly turned over his army and departed for the United States. It was, in short, a rather significant and pointed counterexample to Santa Ana. Regardless of what Polk thought, however, Scott remained a national hero, and even Democrats frankly saw Polk's tactic as nothing more than crony politics at their most tedious. President Polk had his way on paper and managed to mar Scott's sterling record for his own purpose, but the episode instead rebounded, even to this day, to Scott's credit and Polk's disgrace. General Winfield Scott soon reoccupied his position of general-in-chief of the army. As for Gideon Pillow, well, we will deal with him further one day. Suffice to say that he will continue to toady up powerful politicians and received undeserved appointments despite a distinct lack of anything resembling basic ability. And with that, American soldiers finally departed Mexico City on July 12, 1848. They formally took down the flag, and it was replaced with the Mexican above the National Palace once more. Regiment by regiment, they journeyed back to Veracruz, the long road, and they boarded ships to travel home. In the grand scheme of things, it had been a brief war, but a very grueling one. The army that departed looked very little like the one which had gone into Mexico in the first place. Though the American forces fought like lions, soldiers and officers perished at a shocking rate. Between the numerous small and sharp battles and the ever-present threat of disease, a quarter of the military field had died in that war, including a very large proportion of the officer corps. Now, next time, we are going to be looking at events in California and the West during this war, but I am going to pause here to shut the door on President Polk today. For good or for ill, he deserves that much. President James K. Polk's achievements and attitudes speak for themselves. He was an imperialist of the purest form, largely free of interest in abstract concepts like industrialization, slavery, national versus state power structures, or anything else. His politics were purely personal and largely free from the prejudice of any kind of principle, though he had a basic ideology grounded in Democratic Party platform. I'm not even sure if he particularly thought about race much at all, or at least the issue didn't appear to excite him or trouble him. He would tweak the nose of John Bull as readily as Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna. What Polk had, surprisingly enough, was vision, or at least a vision, a vision of the United States extended across the continent, becoming a Pacific power as well as an Atlantic one, and entirely secure against European interference. He bent all his considerable abilities to achieving that vision, and he finally succeeded beyond anyone's expectation. The irony, of course, was that doing so relied on a group strongly opposed to Polk politically. From the start, Polk needed the Whig-dominated army, while the Democrat-backed navy became almost irrelevant to his ambitions. It was the two energetic Whig generals of the day, in the form of Taylor and Scott, who achieved the great lasting glories of the war and the public knew it as well as Polk. It rankled him so badly that he kept trying to cut down on both in turn, but ultimately to no avail. Polk declined to run for office again. He had promised not to run for president twice, and perhaps that did matter to him, for gentlemen of the age were mighty sensitive to matters of honor. But Polk may also have simply had no more to do. A second term in office couldn't possibly measure up in any concrete way to his first. Further, It turned out that Polk would be running a campaign against General Taylor, which perhaps did not bode well for any Democrat. Instead, Polk went off into retirement, a fading star in his own time. Perhaps that was enough, for few men shaped the United States like him, and yet today few Americans remember his part in our national history. Good, bad, or ugly, Polk created the physical form of the modern United States, and broke past the lines on the map. But events over the next decade would define the essence within that form, and it would nearly obliterate the map that Polk spent his presidency to create. Polk, though possessed of real talent, completely underrated the dangers and trouble before him on the subject of Mexico. His control of affairs contributed little, and he nearly got multiple armies wiped out by starving them of the forces and supplies needed to wage such a huge war. His military policies were, quite frankly, extraordinarily risky plays, and they succeeded because of a series of extraordinary talented generals and junior officers, basically all Whigs. Polk risked everything and gained much, but he gambled stupidly. And Mexico would be avenged in time, for as the poet Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote then, the United States will conquer Mexico, but it will be as the man swallows the arsenic, Mexico will poison us. It proved exactly so, or really much worse than Emerson ever imagined. As for Polk himself? Well, his health was failing even as he walked away from the White House in the new Zachary Taylor administration. Three months later, he died quietly in his Tennessee home. Now, because the time is right, let's also see Alf Antonio López de Santa Anna, because we've spent a lot of time with him by now. After his crushing defeat, he fled Mexico into exile once more. It was a new domestic government that accepted the treaty. He managed to return, and even return to power one final time in 1853, but the truth was he learned nothing and gained no perspective. Having outlived most of his old enemies, he set about creating new ones, and found himself once again beaten and sent into flight. A new generation of Mexican leaders, led by Juan Alvarez, tired of Santa Ana. In time, the government of Benito Juarez took over. During the French invasion in the 1860s, Santa Ana tried to come back into the game once more and play savior yet again, but Juarez wasn't having any of it. Santa Ana finally managed to return home only in the mid-1870s, where he spent his last two years quietly. Like Polk, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana had real political ability, but he lacked the character to use it. He could lead men but seemed not to comprehend a political office as anything other than a personal honor, thus he ultimately led nowhere. Though hardly solely at fault, he never used his gift for popular politics to create a strong Mexico. Instead, he repeatedly took power, only to quickly founder because he consistently stirred up trouble. He would run and hide and then return at the inopportune moment, but ultimately, he never became more than an opportunist's His only lasting legacy is the inadvertent introduction of chewing gum to Americans, for which I am sure generations of American dentists curse him. However, with good teeth or bad, next week we explore the first great American adventures into the Old West, where a cast of colorful characters, including a few friends from our own recent stories, will go out to plant the American flag across the Southwest. Warning, there will be blood. Thank you for listening to the American Civil War podcast. Come back next time, y'all.